0: Good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together on this beautiful fall day. Welcome to any guests this morning. My name's Mark, one of the pastors. Hey, if you didn't get my uh, note from Mark this week, it's because we don't have your contact information. If you'd like to get those, just an opportunity to catch up with what God's stirring in my heart. So you can just fill out one of those communication cards and just drop it off. But I, I mentioned what's been heavy on my heart has been these regular phone conversations that I've had with Pastor Matthew. So if you're new here, we've got a sister church in Monrovia, Liberia, kind of at the epicenter of this whole Ebola virus crisis. And so we've been, we regularly talk just about every week. And most of the times before the Ebola situation, those are kind of lighthearted, encouraging, catching up, a lot of laughter. That's not been the tone of the conversations. They've been very heavy And a couple weeks ago, Matthew told me that one of their daughter church pastors, Pastor Varney, his daughter was stricken with the Ebola virus, and then last week, he let me know that she had died. And then within a few days, Pastor Varney was taking his wife to the hospital. He thought she had Ebola. They wouldn't admit her in that hospital. He was en route to another hospital, and she died en route. And it's just like, oh my word, oh my word. The fear of this deadly, contagious virus is all around everybody in Monrovia. There's probably not too many people whose families haven't been affected in some way. We're getting a glimpse of it just in the recent week with this Liberian man who traveled back to Dallas, right? And all that's going on around that. There's a shortage of food supply. Markets have been shut down which means the prices are going up. And these are our brothers and sisters who normally eat only one meal a day. So that's a huge deal. Just normal medical care, it's really hard to access right now because everybody's focused on the Ebola patients. And if you've followed any of the projections, they're mind-blowing. I mean, I've heard from a doctor in... uh, Well, doctors around here saying could could easily be a million in West Africa, I, I've heard of doctors in Europe saying could be more, and so what we, we've been praying, we've been helping in tangible ways, and um, a couple of weeks back I sent a, a note with a link, and that just, we kind of missed that one, so we're pretty good at just giving when we're here, and so on your way out, or if you gave on the way in, and if you don't know how you do that, how we do that here, because there's nothing that ever gets passed, is because we have boxes and we give online. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set aside 10% of this weekend's offering, whether you gave electronically or in the boxes, to go towards relief with our brothers and sisters. There's an expression of our solidarity, of our love, and a tangible way to... Um, just help out in this really horrific situation. Now, the reason we came up with this 10% is when I I was in Liberia, they they do offering a little different. So you're on your feet, the choir's singing, and it turns into a parade, and everybody walks down, and at the front of the church, there's a basket that says offerings, and then there's a tithe. So a tithe just means a tenth. So a tenth of your weekly earnings. The offerings would be above and beyond that. And then they had this box that's called the tithe of a tithe. And so it was a tenth of the tenth right? And then all of the tithe of the tithe, they would give away to people in need in their surrounding communities. Now, well, that's a really cool thing. They do that every day uh, that they meet. So we're going to do that, okay? So I want to just thank you in advance for your generous giving. Uh, the Bible talks about exercising the grace of giving. This is a huge way to extend God's grace to people in need. And then I would just say one of the things I regularly say, because what do you say to your friend who's going through all this, who feels the weight of this, whose wife almost bled to death three weeks ago, Pastor Matthews. What do you say? You say, we love you, we're praying for you. I say that all the time. We are praying for you. So would you just remember that when you're giving thanks over a meal this week? Do you remember that when you're in your life group and coming together in your ministries or you know, you're together with your roommates? Just keep praying, keep praying. They're still in the middle of it. it, it the trend line is still going bad to worse and so let's continue to pray for God's mercy for help for strength for Pastor Matthew we've got partners there besides the church so Vision Trust is helping feed kids and getting them medical help schools are all shut down but Vision Trust who's planning schools where EFCM is planning churches so it's a cool partnership they're still feeding those families we're going to be connecting with our partners to help with prevention to help with food to give a love gift to Pastor Varney so thanks for being part of that. Let me pray. So, Lord, we just lift up our brothers and sisters there for Pastor Matthew, Pastor Varney, who uh, this very day they were leading their people in worship to you. We're not even sure how that works for a man like Pastor Varney right now. We pray for extra mercy and grace. We pray, Father, for hope. We pray for your mercy. We pray that you debate this terrible disease, and we pray that our giving, Lord, would make a difference, Lord, in real ways to the people there. Pray these things in Christ's name, Amen. So, Pastor Varney, you know, I don't think I met him when I was there four or five years ago. Pastor Bob met him in his recent trip, but he's been much on my mind. I've been thinking about so. How does Pastor Varney? How does he get up in front of his people today? How do you preach? How do how do you sing? when um, you, you couldn't actually even touch your daughter as she was dying for fear of getting Ebola. Maybe he did, I don't know. But that fear would be in there. How, how, do you, how do you lead your people when you have such great, overwhelming loss, when you're living in the midst of chaos? And I don't think any of us, in as hard a situation as we're in right now, would ever even try to compare what we're going through with what he's gone through. (laughs) But what I do know is when we're going through hard circumstances like that, we can come to the same question, and that is, God, are you there? Uh, Do you know where we are You've you've made a lot of promises to us. You've given us a lot of truth and we're wondering how these could actually be true. How is it that all things could work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes? God, I don't see any good coming out of this awful situation. And so you you may not say, I I understand, none of us understand exactly, do we? But maybe we understand fear right now. Maybe we have this constellation of anxiety and it's just choking life out of us. Maybe it's raising these kinds of questions. And so as I've been preparing a message on Luke 2, which I've never prepared in the month of October, that's like a Christmas text. That's like a December passage. It's been really fascinating to come to this understanding that, oh my goodness, you know what we've done? We have taken one of the greatest stories about one of the greatest doctrines of our faith, the incarnation of God becoming a human being. He sent Jesus to become a baby for us. And we've turned it into a seasonal celebration. There's nothing wrong with a seasonal celebration, but it's so much more than that. Because one of the things that happens when it becomes a seasonal thing is because it's, it's with Christmas, man, it's wrapped up with all kinds of traditions, right? We all have Christmas traditions, right? And then it's, it's wrapped up to all kinds of emotions and sentiment. And we, we actually lose the power of the story of God sending his son in the midst of horrific circumstances, reminding us that he keeps his word, and through his son, he offers us peace and joy and hope not just in December, but every day of our lives. So grab your Bible, and let's take a fresh look at the Christmas story. As you're turning, uh, we remember a couple of weeks ago when we started in, we noted that Luke was writing his gospel. This is one of four, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke tells us why he's writing it. He's writing it to his friend Theophilus, probably a new believer, a believer who's been taught about Christ, who believes in Christ, but isn't completely sure about what he's heard. Is it really true? How can I be sure that it's true? And he's writing this letter, this gospel, that he would have certainty that the things he has been taught are indeed true. Remember the first story he told him? The story about this priest named Zechariah who was given a promise by God, who said, I've heard your prayer, you're in Elizabeth's prayer, and I just want you to know, you're going to have a son. And this was a word of God that seemed too good to be true. But against all odds, God's word came into being, right? Even though Zachariah doubted it. So now we come to the story of Christ's birth. And the story doesn't start where Linus... Remember that great Peanuts Christmas? (laughs) Linus starts, and it's beautiful. He's quoting Luke too, but he starts with there were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, right? But that's not where Luke starts the story. He starts the story in the midst of some very dark circumstances, circumstances that seemingly are random, chaotic, and there seemingly is no way that God's word could come true. So with that in mind, let's read the opening five verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So when the circumstances of your life today shout, No way. There's no way that God's promises can come true in my current situation. The Christmas story reminds us that God keeps his word and he uses unlikely circumstances, unlikely means to accomplish and keep his promises. So what do we know about the opening of the Christmas story? He uses an ungodly ruler who's a powerful man. He's a pagan. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire. He uses oppressive laws, so it may seem kind of innocuous, not a big deal, so they had to go registered. No, actually, that registration, that census taking of the entire Roman Empire would set up taxation, and the taxes the people of Israel would pay didn't do much for the infrastructure in, in their towns of Nazareth and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It was all going back to Rome. He was actually paying for the soldiers that reminded them as they saw him walk in the streets with their swords at their sides that they were oppressed, defeated people. He used an ungodly ruler, an oppressive law. He used interruption and difficulty and hardship to fulfill his word. So Mary's just about full term. We'll call her full term, right? They live up in Nazareth. They have to go to Bethlehem because that's the family line that Joseph was from. And so he had to go to King David's city. Bethlehem means the house of bread to go register there. That was the law. You go to your your city of origin. Now, this is a 70-mile trip. There is no commuter rail. There's no bus line. They don't have cars. Maybe... They've got a mule, maybe. Uh, on a normal situation, it's a four-day walk. So ladies, you do the math for me when you're full term. And this was not on their plans. Hey, I got a great idea. Right before you go into to labor, let, let's go down to Bethlehem. It'll be great. It's not on their p- Program. That's not what they're thinking. This is this is all inconvenient. It was hard. Can you imagine that, ladies? Seventy miles at nine months. I don't care if the whole thing was on a donkey. It wasn't good. <laughs> Why Bethlehem? Well, we know it's the home he's from, right? But. There's more to the story. This is part of God's program all along. God said through the prophet of Micah, 700 years before Jesus is born, these words, Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's like another way of saying, this guy's always existed, eternal ruler an eternal king and if we hear micah's word and we know the rest of the old testament we're going that sounds a lot like second samuel 7 david one of your descendants is going to sit on a king he is going sit on a throne he's going to be an eternal king who sets up a kingdom that will never pass away an eternal kingdom oh it's that one and we know that's the understanding of the day because when the Magi following the star get to Jerusalem and meet up with King Herod to say, hey, we think the king of the Jews has been born. King Herod gets his people together to say, wise man, where is this supposed to happen? And they say, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. This was God's plan all along. What seems completely out of control was completely in God's control. This isn't a run of unbelievable luck. What God promised a 1,000 years before to David, what he promised 700 years before through Micah was happening today. And here's what we need to think about. What a wild thought. What a note to self right now. In the midst of your life where you go, these things don't add up, there is no way God could be doing anything good through this circumstances right now. This circumstance right now is we remember this. Who did God use? to move the son of God into the very place according to his plan. That is Bethlehem. He used a pagan, powerful ruler who didn't give a rip about God. In fact, the emperor of Rome was considered who? Do you know? Yes, God. He kind of fancied himself to be God and liked it that people worshipped him as God. And he uses that man and the oppressive rules and all the hardship and all the difficulty to move the son of God into the very place where he was to be, to bring good not only to that couple, but to us. It so reminds us of the proverb in Proverbs 21.1, a proverb that we ought to have just kind of plastered above the circumstances of our chaos right now. Listen to what it says. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. By the way, the he is the Lord wherever he pleases. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control of all that you're sure is out of control. He keeps his word. He's keeping his word. May the Christmas story give us strength to believe that it is true. So now we come to two verses—the only two verses I realize in the entire Bible that describes the birth of Christ. There's references to his birth, subtle ones like in the word "became flesh" and dwelt among us. That's John's version. Mark doesn't even have a version. Luke has a passing after he was born. This is the only two verses we have of. Jesus' actual birth. Pretty wild to think about. Two verses in the whole Bible. And before we read these two verses, I, I want us to see, because it's, it's all wrapped, this story is so familiar, it's so wrapped in these warm, it's like, well, of course, that's what we expect, in a manger and all these things. We just, let, let me just take us back to a recent royal birth, Prince George, Cates and William's son. To, to, to kind of set up the reading of 6 and 7. So I, I want to refresh your memory of how nobility is welcomed into our world today. Here are the proud parents waving to the crowd, a short photo op right outside of St. Mary's Hospital as they leave. There's a 41-gun salute. That would be cannons, the big kahunas. The crowds gather around Buckingham Palace trying to get a peek. The royal announcement framed and seated on that beautiful, looks like a gold-plated easel. We got lots of those around here. They're on the palace grounds. And of course, the headlines that just covered the cities of our world. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Verse 6. While they were there, The time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So the long awaited promised king shows up not in a palace, right? But in a stable. Not surrounded by a crowd, but by some smelly cattle. He's not wrapped in beautiful blankets. He's wrapped in strips of cloth. We'd probably call them rags today. He's not lying in some beautiful royal crib, but in a feeding trough, a feeding trough. So what are the details we have in these two short verses? Location, born in Bethlehem, check, Micah 5.2. A brief mention of his birth order and gender. He's the firstborn. She would have others. Luke knew that, wanted to be clear. This was her first. She truly was a virgin. He was a son. A footnote on his clothing, repeated, wrapped up in strips of rags, letting us know he was not born into privilege. And just so we're clear about it, we're told several times in the text, he was laid in a manger. Not the one that we built for the Christmas pageant. It was all neat and clean and freshly painted with a little bit of straw spilling out of it. No, this was a feeding trough. This had been encrusted over the years with the slobber of the animals that fed out of it. And as cleaned up as Mary tried to get it, let me tell you, the layers were still there. It was gross. And I know we love to sing Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. I love to sing the carols. I love to sing that carol. But you know what? When Theophilus, who read these words for the first time, heard Luke and read Luke's words, manger, manger, manger. You know what he felt like? If I were to say, the song goes like, away in a dumpster. A dumpster. A dumpster. See, Now we're getting it. Now we're getting a little more. This is shocking. This is unlikely. What in the world is going on? Not only is God using unlikely means, but he has sent us an unlikely savior, not what we're expecting to be the hope of the world. Born not in a guest room, not out in the camp or out back, but very likely out under the stars behind the inn along with the animals. No room in the inn. Don't beat, up, don't beat up the innkeeper. They're not back there because the guy was cruel. I would argue he was kind to say, I am so sorry we do not have a room, but man, if there's any way you could use my stable to be a place for your wife, Joseph, please make yourself at home there and do whatever you can. I'll help you, whatever I can do. They're they're back there because that's where the Father wanted Jesus to come into this world. Born in obscurity. Born in abject poverty. The humility of our God to not only take on flesh, but to be born in a feeding trough. What an unveiling. Kind of makes you think of Apple's recent unveiling of the iPhone 6, right? u how, how many millions of dollars do you think Apple just spent? Oh my goodness. Free albums? I mean, they pay. Let me tell you, Apple paid for those YouTube 2 free albums that we're downloading. You think about all the detail, the international, how it went through it. I mean, and then here's what we've got. God sends his son into this world in a back alley, and nobody seemingly knows what is going on. Unbelievable. And let me just say, if you're here, and I'm glad you are here, if you're in this place, still scratching your head going, I'm not sure I buy it. I actually think this is the kind of stuff that just people make up. It has a life of its own, and this stuff never really happened, and this is just a figment of people's imagination. If you and I are trying to start something new to gain some credibility and maybe a following and start something fresh called Christianity, this story's not in it. This story is not in it. Not only because of the humble beginnings, but even what might seem to be spectacular on um, the next part of the story, but I'm going to help you understand how that would be a hard sell in the first century. Verse 8. Today, in the town of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. He is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts, of heavenly angels, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace. 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 To those on whom his favor rests. Now, it's important for us to move the shepherd out of the warm, fuzzy memory. Because, you know, if you ever played the shepherd, or you had one of your kids play the shepherd, you know, wasn't that so cute with their bathrobe on, that little shepherd's crook, and they had that little towel on their head with the little halo, putting it in there. This is so great. The shepherds, everyone loved the shepherds. Not on that day. Not in that day. Shepherds were despised. They were at the bottom of the ladder socially. These were men if they were Jews, and these were likely Jews. In fact, the flocks that they were tending out up on the hills outside of Bethlehem, this is just a few steps away, by the way from Jerusalem, and a year from now, we're going to take a trip to Jerusalem and to Israel. Lori and I went there the first time. When we got to Bethlehem, it was like, are you kidding me? This is Bethlehem? Because I had all these warm... I mean, I thought Bethlehem was going to be green and hilly and just beautiful. It was a pile of rocks. It was a pile of rocks. But Bethlehem is like two miles from Jerusalem. Those sheep that they're tending are all going to the temple for sacrifices. These are Jewish shepherds. And because they're dealing with animals, they were unable to keep themselves ceremonially clean, according to the law of Moses. So they were despised for that. They were despised because they had this ongoing problem of forgetting what was theirs and what was somebody else's. You know what I'm talking about? So they were known as thieves. And because they had such a bad reputation, the Talmud, the collection of Jewish writings that were put together by the rabbis of the day, said, these guys are unreliable and they are not to be allowed to give testimony in the court of law. These guys. Wow. So who does God reveal the story to? To be the first witness, the first witnesses? a group of people that couldn't bear witness in court. That's just like God, isn't it? We wouldn't write that in the story. That wouldn't work in the first century. So what does the angel say? Well, the angel, whenever the angel speaks, we remember the word angel means messenger. So that means they're bringing a message. Whose message? God's message. Whenever we hear the angel speak in the story, of the Bible, like we've been hearing it time and time again, right? The angel to Zechariah, the angel to Mary, the angel to the shepherds here. The angel is bringing God's word. We're hearing God's word. Here's the beautiful thing. When when I say to you guys, I say the Bible doesn't need to be interpreted. It It is an interpretation. And right now we're seeing that principle at work because it's going to interpret the historical fact of this child's birth and it's going to tell us not only who this child is, but why he is here and what he's going to do. You see the interpretation here? And the, the message is really clear. Today in the city of David, a savior has been born. Fear not. This is good news. It's good news of great joy for all people. When we say our desire at Door Creek is to be a Christ-centered church for all people, it's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the Christmas story. It's rooted in the heart of God. This is good news of great joy, bringing peace for all people. What is the good news that brings great joy and peace? That this baby, this Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes, some of us remember that word swaddling. Still not sure what that means, but I think it means cloth. This baby Wrapped in these claws, lying in a manger, is the Savior. He is the Christ, the Messiah. That's not Jesus' last name. Jesus' first name, Christ's last name. No, Jesus is his given name. It means God is salvation. That's what the angel Gabriel told Joseph to name him in Matthew 1.21. Christ means the anointed one, this promised Savior, this one who's going to crush the enemy's head in Genesis 3, this one who is going to bring blessing to all the families of the world in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, this one who's going to be David's son who sets up an eternal kingdom, In 2 Samuel 7, this is the one who Isaiah talks about in chapter 9 as being this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, the one who would be wounded for our sin, Isaiah 53. This one who would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. This one who would be born from the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He's the promised savior. Savior from what? Well, Gabriel told Joseph. He, you are to name him Jesus, which is the, the Greek equivalent of Joshua, which means God is salvation. And the reason you name him Jesus is because he will save people from their sins. What does that mean? Well, from trying to play God of our own life, saying, God, I don't need you, cutting ourselves off from God, separating ourselves from God, because we didn't take God at his word that we, we had a better way to do it. And all that's wrapped around that, from death and the curse and all the chaos of this world that goes back to us playing God. He's going to save us from that. And he is the Lord. Twenty times now we come across this word, the Lord. And every time we read this word kurios in the in the Greek, Lord, it's a referent to God. Just Just go to verse 15. You'll see it right here. When the angels had left them, that is the shepherds up in the hills, and gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they understood that God was speaking to them through the angels and we understand they're still in the hills. They haven't talked to Jesus about it. It's not like they went to Jesus and the Lord Jesus said to them. No, no. God is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. God is telling us who Jesus is. Here's God's take on Jesus. Savior the promised Savior. He's the Lord. He's the king over everything. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so they finish their announcement. The heavens fill with angels who break out in song, glorifying God and announcing peace on earth, on those whom God's favor rests. So that's like a really important question because I don't care if you're like in a really funky time, a really crazy time, chaotic time, or things are pretty good. Most people I know living today, most places today that I know of around the world are looking for peace, for peace. Peace especially the kind of peace that the Bible talks about, a peace that passes human understanding that actually could be dominating the interior of your soul and giving you a calm and a sense of well-being when everything around you seemingly is crumbling. And if you've never experienced that, I so long for you to be at that place, to experience that through the grace of God, through the Prince of Peace, Christ, to actually know that. And so the announcement is, peace on earth, but it, it, it's not for all the people. The good news is for all the people. The peace is for those on whom God's favor rests. It raises the really important question. So how do you get God's favor? What is this word favor? It's says grace. How do you get grace? Well, let's just work it out from Luke. We've been looking at it. Who gets grace? Who gets God's favor? Mary. In her humility, she takes God at, his, at her word. Who gets God's grace? Joseph. Well, how do we know these guys are taking God as words? How do we know the angels are receiving God's favor and grace? Because here's what we know. They're humble people who took God as word. Joseph did not divorce his wife. He wanted to. He was planning on it until Gabriel said, no, 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 no. She really is bearing the child of God. She really is a virgin. Don't divorce her. He took God word. Mary, I'm your servant. Do with me as you will. I know it's going to bring me all kinds of shame and, and agony, but God, I want to do your will. How do we know that shepherds took God's word? Because, man, look at what it says here in verse 15. Did you notice it? They said at the end of 15, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. They didn't say that supposedly has happened, that we heard about might have happened. That has happened, and they go. They go. And verse 16 says, as they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger and when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Oh, that's good. They didn't just tell their experience. Well, you, you won't believe it. We were up in the hills and this angel, I'm sure they did. But what they were spreading was this child is Savior. He is Christ, the promised Savior. He is the Lord. That's what they were spreading. And all who heard it Wondered. They were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them. That is, she tossed them together, still trying to make sense of it all, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So, this is a theme that we've been coming back to. So what was the last line of verse 20? Which were just as they had been told, that God kept his word. So remember, we're always looking for bookends when we're reading the Bible. One of the things I I, uh, ask of the guys who teach with me here is, we don't want you to come to church and go, wow, how do they do that? It's so mysterious. They're so spiritual. They know Greek and Hebrew. We want you to gain confidence in the Word of God. I want you to know how to study the Word of God. Discover the Word of God on your own. So we're looking for bookends. I say that all the time. We're looking for bookends. There's an explicit bookend at the end of verse 20. God kept His Word. It was just as he said what was just as he said we found a baby lying in a manger that's not everyday stuff folks wrapped in cloths it, god kept his word what's the beginning of the story what's all through the story god kept his word his word to the prophet micah to the people of god he kept his word to joseph and mary when they're holding the christ child jesus in their arms what are they saying It's a miracle. Mary knows she's not been intimate with any man. God kept his word. Joseph is going, he kept his word. I know I'm not the father. God kept his word all through here. That's the story of Christmas. Like, I've gone through the Christmas story how many times? I've never seen this kind of central theme here. God keeps his word of promise when the circumstances are crazy and it seemingly says there's no way it could happen. God keeps his word through an unlikely savior that we've dressed up in all of our tradition and we're so familiar with it, we're not shocked anymore by the amazing story of the incarnation, which isn't a seasonal thing, but it's a today thing because I need peace and you need peace. And I need to know the source of joy. I need to meet my savior. I need to know that I need a savior. But here's the question I've been wrestling with. Because it's hard here for a lot of us. I mean hard, but that's a degree to hard that's going on in, in Monrovia, let's say, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, Africa, West Africa. If I was preaching in Liberia like I was supposed to on August seventeenth this summer, and we are going through this, what would I say to the brothers and sisters in Africa? as the elephant in the room has to be, is God still keeping his word of promise to us? What what does this Christmas story say to that question? So let's finish with that. So something happened this week where the horror of um, the Ebola virus and the situation just doubled for me. So it's already horrific in terms of how quickly it snatches life. It's horrific in terms of um, the 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 fatality rate, right? 70% of people who get it are going to die. It's already unbelievable when you realize there's really no known cure and any hope of an experimental drug is completely inaccessible to people in Monrovia at our sister church. And then you got the whole thing of the body's most contagious when the body has just died. And by the way, they prepare bodies for burial. There's there's not a funeral home, a mortician that does that. They do that. So this is when it doubled for me. It's like, so you've got a daughter who's been diagnosed to have Ebola, and she's your daughter, and she's dying. And it's like a horrific death. And you go, I, 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 can't, I can't touch her because I'm likely going to get it. His wife's dead in the seat next to him in the car. What, what are you doing? And then, and then to think about in his great loss he's completely cut off from the physical touch of people that love him and would long to embrace him and he desperately needs to be held. And he's he's just, you see what I'm saying? And so then these two images kind of came into my mind. The hazmat suit that's being worn by all of the doctors and the nurses and the people that are caring for these bodies or disposing of dead bodies. And have you seen how carefully they put him on and how they shower and everything's protected? And then I think of this other picture of Luke 2, of Christ coming into this world like you and me with no protective suit on, knowing full well that he was entering this world to suffer death as he embraced our humanity and our suffering. He was born to die. And what we remember at Christmas, whether we're living in Monrovia or here in Madison, is God understands that. God suffered the loss. God experienced death. Christ entered the world naked. He finished this world naked, wrapped in strips of cloth at the beginning. His robe gambled over by Roman guards as he hung naked on a cross. He sent his son to suffer to end suffering. He is keeping his word because he's always kept his word. And though it seems crazy right now, though it doesn't seem to be good at all, we can trust that God is at work and is faithful it's not the end of the story. The cross wasn't the end of the story. Ebola is not the end of the story. The dark cloud over your circumstances right now is not the end of the story. And so may we find God's favor as we take God' His word. And with that favor, rest and peace and joy. Could you say today, Christ is my Savior? Are you still trying to work it out on your own? Have you lost that truth? Are you still trying to manage the circumstances in life? God said he sent a son, a Savior. I guess that means, Mark, you need one. And you're not it. So we acknowledge these he's our Savior, the promised one, and that he's Lord. That actually there isn't any category in my life where God says, you know, you're good. You run that part. Every part of my life, every part of your life under his leadership. Lord, we pray that the Christmas story would transform us to be women and men of faith and confidence because you're a God who's in control even of the things that seemingly are out of control. That there are Caesar Augustus in our life, there are decrees, there are hardships, there are interruptions that seemingly are completely out of control and you remind us, no, no. They're like pawns in your hand. Settle us in that truth. May we get to this place where we understand we need a Savior, not at the beginning of the journey, but every moment of the journey. We need a Savior today. Our world needs a Savior today. Our family needs a Savior today. Our marriage needs a Savior today. My thought life needs a Savior today. That we would submit all that we have and all that we are to you. For your glory, may we go out and serve in humility, who embrace obscurity, move towards the hurting, and be willing like you, Jesus, to give our lives away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.